We are in the last month of apologetics, and apologetics is a discipline dealing with the defense of the Christian faith, so giving reasons why we believe what we do, and we do that every year at SVCC during the month of August. Uh, starting next week, we'll be in September, and we'll be back in our Matthew series, but we saved um, one of the kind of heavyweight giants of the apologetics world for you today. His name is Dr. Paul Copan. Uh, he's written over 40 books he's and, and edited 40 books so he's kind of one of those people who you go like dude you've written over 40 books like that means at this stage of life you're, you're writing books faster than i can read them type, type type of thing you know what i mean he has served uh as the president of the evangelical theolo theolo evangelical philosophical society for six years in 2017 he was a visiting scholar at oxford university and probably most important at least for me, is for my friends who are doing theological work, philosophical work, apologetic work, as you read their material and their works, time and time again, they are quoting and referencing Dr. Paul Copan. So he's someone that's had massive influence in the world of philosophy and apologetics. And it's our pleasure to have him here for the last week of apologetics, Dr. Paul Copan. Thank you, brother. Thanks, Isaac. I appreciate that. Good to be with you all. Uh, good to be at a place where apologetics is appreciated, uh, being able to give a reason for the hope that lies within us, and doing so with gentleness and respect. If you want to come and join us at Palm Beach Atlantic University, we've got an undergrad in apologetics and a master's in philosophy of religion. <clears throat> come and study with us, and then come back to California. Uh, don't abandon your folks here. Uh, we appreciate uh, however, the, uh, the camaraderie that we have in Christ and sharing the same vision of the importance of apologetics uh, in our day. I've been asked to address this question, uh, who made God? Uh, and as we ask this question, uh, it is something that is, uh, you know, again, common question that we get. How many of you have been asked this question or maybe even have asked, uh, you know, someone else this question? Anybody? You know, it, it comes up quite a bit, um, and, and as we'll see, a lot of writers, scholars will say, yeah, where did God come from? A lot of critics of the Christian faith. So we're going to unpack that and try to get to the bottom of some answers to this. But first, let's take a look at a couple of scriptures that, I, that are relevant to this very question. Of course, we're familiar with this one, the very beginning of our scriptures. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That the, uh, you know, that, that goes on to say the land was desolate and uninhabitable and darkness was over the surface of the deep. The spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Think about it. Willing it into existence. Nothing and then something. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Then we see the echo of Genesis 1 in John chapter 1, where it begins in the same way. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not 
comprehend it. So we move from the, the old creation to the one who brings about the new creation, brings about new life, uh, that we see that there is a new creation that began actually with the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, that the resurrection uh, meant the beginning of the new creation that would be the fore, in a sense, the foreshadowing of our own bodily resurrections in the new heavens and the new earth. So when children ask this question, how do we address it? And when adult skeptics ask us this question, how do we address it? Uh, we want to understand that in, with these questions there often come assumptions. And interestingly, when Jesus would receive questions, he would often reply with a question. Remember that? When he would, you know, when someone says, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And he asked someone to bring a coin, well, whose image is on this? Well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and God the things that are God's. You know, who is my neighbor? Well, let me tell you a story. And then Jesus says, well, you know, the good Samaritan. And who was the neighbor to him? And of course, you know, you know, by what authority are you doing these things? His opponents asked. And Jesus said, well, okay, let me ask you a question. John's baptism, was it from, you know, men, from human beings, or was it from above, from heaven? And they didn't want to answer it, so Jesus had kind of caught them in their own attempt to trap him. And so Jesus was asking questions that often revealed people's assumptions, their motives. And I think sometimes it's just good to ask questions for clarification. You know, what do you mean by that term? Uh, you know, maybe you could tell me a little bit about where you're coming from. I need to I mean, give me a little context for that sort of a question. Uh, and and it's a, it's, it shows respect to someone that you're engaging in dialogue with. Uh, it shows, it also gives you a little bit of time to recover in case you need a little bit of time to catch your breath as you're talking. Um, but, but I think it's also good just in general to be a good listener. James 1 says, let everyone be quick to listen and slow to speak. We often reverse those. We're often very quick to jump in and very slow to listen. And sometimes we even anticipate what a person is going to say, and we want to jump in with, oh yeah, but, but, but think about this, or what about that? Just let the person talk. And then in doing so, you can earn credibility so that when that person's done sharing his own viewpoint, you can then have the opportunity to share your own viewpoint. So be a good listener first, and I find that even when we're dealing with issues of God's existence and problem of evil and so forth, I find that it's very helpful to just listen to people first, let them tell their story, especially if they're angry or agitated. I wanna let them tell their story because a lot of times the answer is not intellectual, but it's often very personal. It's, uh, there's something, you know, that, you know, no matter what arguments you give them, some people are not even interested in it. But sometimes hearing their story and the pain that may come with it, the loss that, they are, that, that is part of their story, can help inform you and remind you that there's more going on than just an intellectual issue here. So that's something to keep in mind as we engage with people's questions. Well, here's Bertrand Russell, a noted atheist, uh, was uh, taught at Oxford University, he was a mathematician, a logician, and in his not-so-logical essay, uh, you know, why I'm not a Christian, he does bring about this, you know, this line. He says, if we, you know, if you, we ask who made me, then we should also ask who made God. 
And so he concluded that uh, you know, if everything must have a cause, then God must have a cause. Hmm. Is he right about that? Everything has to have a cause? Well, we'll see later on that he contradicts himself. So we'll come back to Bertrand Russell in a, moment, in a bit. But uh, Stephen Hawking, the noted physicist, mathematician, uh, he was in the Lucasian chair of, of mathematics at Cambridge University, which is the very position that Isaac Newton held. Uh, so a very prestigious uh, position. And so Stephen Hawking said, does the universe need a creator? And if so, does he have any other effect on the universe? And who created him? Where did the creator come from? Well, I always thought that the creator didn't need a creator. creator. Um, but uh, there, there's Stephen Hawking uh, expressing that. Here's Daniel Dennett. My wife and I got to meet Daniel Dennett uh, at a conference in New Orleans, and we, uh, our actually room was across the hall from him, and we went to breakfast together and had conversations. I had a kind of a little bit of a, uh, a debate with him about his position on morality. Um, but a great-looking Santa Claus, wouldn't you say? I mean, he would be terrific on, uh, around Christmas time. Um, yeah, you know, but uh, he says, if God created and designed all these wonderful things, who created God? Super God? It's kind of a, a silly sort of going on by uh, Daniel Dennett. Uh, and you know, I think he's really not taking the issue seriously about, is it possible that something could be self-existent and self-explanatory? He just dismisses that. Like everything has to have a cause. Well, we'll, we'll explore this a little bit more. So uh, on our question, if God made the universe, who made God? We want to look at just briefly at the scriptures again, uh, science, Philosophy, we'll keep it simple, um, and theology. Keep in mind when I, when I talk about philosophy, remember that everybody here is a philosopher. You all have a philosophy of life about what's real, it's called metaphysics, about knowledge, that's called epistemology, about right and wrong, ethics, that's basically the core of philosophy, and you all have views on these things, and I trust informed by the, the biblical faith. So we're all doing philosophy, and I wanna help us to go a little bit deeper into our understanding, our grasp of these issues. And so it'll mean just probing a bit more deeply into uh, some of these assumptions and questions and, and getting clear on some of our definitions. So, uh, so anyway, we want to be ready to give that answer to those who ask us for the hope that is within us. So here's where we're going. We'll talk about the scriptures uh, briefly, um, that the scriptures give us evidence uh, that the universe came to existence a finite time ago. Uh, when it comes to science, Science also points us in the direction of a beginning, that it points us to a cause beyond the universe. And then thirdly, when it comes to philosophy, philosophy shows us that the idea of something eternal is very rational, it makes sense, uh, that this is not a weird idea, that it's been held from antiquity, uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and so forth. Uh, and then finally, we want to apply a few of these things theologically. Uh, so we want to look at what are the theological implications of this, of, of divine creation and design and so forth. So first, again, just a few more scriptures to, uh, to look at. The scriptures remind us that God uh, created the universe a finite time ago that is not eternal. Uh, the triune God is the source of all reality. 
outside of himself. And we looked at Genesis chapter one, which said that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and that the spirit was hovering, as a picture of that kind of the, like the dove, hovering over the waters, part of the creation process. And then we get to Genesis, or sorry, to John chapter one, and we see that the, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the word, the one who communicates God to us. Jesus says in John 14, nine, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus came to reveal or to communicate God to us. And so he is involved in the creation as well. So we have Father, Son, and Spirit involved in the creation of the universe. Now, just a, something to note here, we see that this triune God, and we'll come back to looking at how God is you know, love, that love exists from eternity within this Father, Son, Holy Spirit relationship. But if you're, if you're thinking about, well, how do I even make sense of this Trinity idea? Well, here's perhaps an analogy that might help. You may have heard of the dog, the three-headed dog, Cerberus, in Greek mythology. Now, in this scenario, you have three centers of awareness, a three-headed dog. So there's distinction, but within the one being of the dog. It's not as though you got three dogs there. You got one dog, but three centers of awareness within that one dog. So there is, they have the same, you know, these three centers of awareness have the same canine nature. They're of one being, but there is distinction within that one being. Obviously, God is spirit, and so when we have you know, Father, Son, and Spirit, we, have, we think, think in terms of a soul or a spirit being that exists but has three centers of awareness within that one being. Indivisible cannot be divided, so it's not three, three beings. No, there are three persons who share the same being, three centers of awareness of will and emotion and uh, capacity for relationship. So, you know, in fact, even in nature, we see that sometimes you'll, you'll have a, a snake that has two heads or a turtle that will have two heads. Again, you have two centers of awareness, but yet one indivisible being. So perhaps it will be helpful. I, I find it helpful when I'm talking to Muslims, to Mormons, to Jehovah's Witnesses. Using that analogy has been very helpful. I mean, not, you know, water is not a good analogy. Three states of water doesn't work uh, because they're not simultaneously, you know, lick, solid, liquid, and gas. They're in different states at different times. Um, or three-leaf clovers or something like that. Um, that's, those don't work adequately. Uh, but the Cerberus one, the three-headed dog one, is very, very helpful and I think leads to fruitful discussion and clarification. But anyway, God, the triune God, involved in creation is the source of all reality outside of himself. Without creation, God was all the reality that there was. But with creation, God brings real things into existence that depend upon him. And so God is the source of all of those uh, things that came into existence a finite time ago. So there are other biblical texts we can talk about. Uh, all things were made by Christ. We saw in John 1, 3, for by Christ all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. Jehovah's Witnesses, will, they have their own translation of the Bible and they will insert another word in there, 
you know, that all other things were created. They say that Jesus was, you know, the Son of God was a creature and not the creator, so they insert other, other, other in, in, in Colossians 1. Again, it's not in the biblical text, in the Greek text, but they're inserting it to, uh, to make it look like Jesus was not the creator, but was, was a creation, which is a false teaching. Revelation 4, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. There were some things that, you know, that, you know all the reality outside of God came to existence a finite time ago. They existed by the will of God. Let's look at science now. What are the reasons, scientifically speaking, to support the notion that the universe is finite and is not eternal? Well, there are three, at least three, supports for the notion that the universe is not eternal but is finite. The first one is that the universe is expanding. The universe is expanding at a dramatic rate, but as you backtrack in time and bring it all to in an earlier point, you eventually converge on a, you know, a starting point. It began to exist. The universe has not been expanding from eternity. You can backtrack it and find, and again, the calculation is about 13.8 billion years ago. Now, some people say, I don't know about that age thing. Well, the point is not really you know, so much the age that I'm, I'm considering considered about, but the fact that the universe began to exist, whether you hold the universe as young or old, the point is there's a general recognition that the universe began to exist, and that's something that we can also uh, you know, can, can, can step into and own and say, yeah, this fits very well with what modern science is saying. Secondly, second law of thermodynamics. Um, you had your cup of coffee this morning, right? If you let it sit too long, it gets cold, maybe you gotta, some people think this is a, you know, a, a, a terrible sin to reheat your coffee. You gotta start fresh brewing and, and everything. You know, whatever you do, but, but you, if you want to warm it up, you've got to put energy back into it. Otherwise, the natural course of things is just going to dissipate. It's, the, the heat is just going to spread out. And that's the tendency of the universe. That's the second law of thermodynamics. Energy is dissipating or spreading out. And eventually, you see, if, eventually, if things keep going the way that they are, all usable energy will be gone. Well, if the universe were eternal, all of that energy would have been used up by now. There would be no usable energy and it would just be all spread out throughout the universe. But the universe has usable energy, which is an indication that the universe has been wound up. The energy source, you know, there's a, a wind, winding up of it. And from that point, it's been winding down. Second law of thermodynamics. Thirdly, the cosmic microwave background radiation. There's a certain sound that two Bell Labs uh, uh, um, scientists discovered that there's this kind of hissing, sizzling sound in the background as they were you know, listening to what's going on in space. And it's actually the same sound that you can pick up on some of you know, that static on radio or that kind of white screen on your TV, that's the after effect of the Big Bang. It's the noise left over from the Big Bang. And they won a Nobel Prize in science because of that. 
So there is that, you know, so we have corroboration from the expansion of the universe to the second law of thermodynamics, everything's winding down to this hissing noise of the Big Bang that, that, that tells us that there was a beginning point to the universe. So from a scientific point of view, the evidence converges very nicely. <clears throat> so when it comes to previous models, there used to be this steady state theory that people talked about, that the universe is static. Uh, yes, energy is being, matter is coming into this universe, but basically it's an eternal universe, that matter is eternal. Well, we now know that that's not the case. Matter is not eternal. Matter, which is convertible to energy, remember E, you know, the E equals mc squared, the E is for energy, the M is for matter. And both, you know, again, whatever state, matter or energy, these are breaking down. They are not able to sustain themselves in, you know, at that same level. And so everything is breaking down, winding down. So that theory was discarded. We have another one called the oscillating model of the universe. And this is like a super ball. Now, I, I grew up playing with super balls and I'd love to see how many times a ball could bounce after you throw it, on, you know, hit it, throw it hard on the ground and it just bounces, 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 bounces. Well, that's kind of the model there, it just bounces, but the same, it's like the, uh, just a grand rebound every time. The universe, you know, expands, contracts, expands, contracts, expands, contracts. I was on a panel discussion uh, talking about this uh, at uh, Florida Atlantic University, just uh, 30 miles uh, south of us in, uh, you know, in West Palm Beach, in, is in Boca Raton, Florida. And I was on a panel discussion talking about human origins and human destiny and what the, you know, and basically different religious representatives were speaking. So I was the Christian representative. There was a Muslim imam, a Jewish rabbi, a uh, Buddhist monk, a Seminole Indian, a Hindu, and a voodoo priestess. I mean, why do, you know, we had quite a hodgepodge of, of viewpoints and we all had to give our perspective on kind of, our, kind of giving our own position on these matters. So I came toward the end and this uh, Hindu had already spoken, but she said, in, within Hinduism, we, this, our Hindu beliefs agree with modern science. She said, you know, the universe is expanding and contracting, expanding and contracting, and that is the view that Hinduism has, that there's a cyclic uh, viewpoint of, of, of the, the world and, and uh, that it's eternal, etc. And when it was my turn to get up, I said, well, actually, the science is pointing in the other direction, that the universe is not eternal, that it is finite, that, uh, that there is not enough energy in the universe to uh, sustain bouncing back every time with just as lively a bounce. Uh, it's more like a, a, a lump of clay that when you throw it on the ground, it just thuds and that's it. There just isn't enough energy in the universe to sustain you know, that eternal energy that continues at the same rate. If the universe were eternal, I said, um, the energy would have dissipated by now because of the second law of thermodynamics. So uh, these are conversations that, you know, that people are talking about. It's important to know that these models are no longer taken seriously. Uh, Stephen Hawking, uh, that physicist we mentioned earlier, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Uh, here's another from Scientific American. Uh, there once was no previous, you know, there once was no previous era and that, you know, that matter, energy, space, and time began abruptly with a bang. 
Here's another. This is a noted uh, cosmologist, a mathematician uh, at Tufts University. Uh, someone who, sorry, <laughs> that's uh, the wrong one. Uh, he's coming up, sorry. This is, um, let me go back here. Uh, that's, that's the guy, Alexander Vilenkin. Okay, let me do, uh, there we go, okay. Steven Weinberg, uh, you know, he was a Nobel Prize winning physicist and he says that it is, he, he liked the steady state model because that is the closest, you know, th because that is the, the one that least resembles the Genesis account where God created the heavens and the earth. You see, he recognizes, or recognized, he's, he just recently died, he recognized that the Genesis account really spoke anticipated the discoveries of modern science. And he didn't like that because it sounded like there must be a personal cause to the universe. So he wanted, he really preferred philosophically, theologically, the steady state uh, theory. Robert Jastrow, uh, he was a, uh, you know, NASA's uh, Goddard, uh, you, know, you know, Goddard Institute, uh, and he was an astronomer, an agnostic, didn't have a, a dog in the fight, as it were, when it came to God's existence or not. And uh, before I read this quotation, though, keep in mind when he's using the term theologian and scientist, he sees them as being in conflict with each other. You know, the, 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 the theologian, you know, doesn't see science as mixing with, you know, or, or fitting with theology or with science. So, so he sees them as kind of like in conflict with each other. But that's not the case. I mean, I've, I've edited, uh, written, th you know, three books in this area of Christianity and science, and there is a real, there are real dialogue partners. There's a real harmony between Christianity and science, and that idea that Christianity and science are in conflict flies in the face of the history of modern science, which was founded by, largely, Christians who believed that God created the universe, that miracles are possible, that there's design in the universe and so forth. So modern science actually had its beginnings with people who are firmly committed to the scriptures, including people like uh, Isaac Newton. Uh, so, so there's not a conflict. Uh, but anyway, when, when, we, when we, there may be some tensions that we, and issues we need to work through, I get that. But, uh, but as Galileo said, he said that if we properly interpret the scriptures and if we understand science accurately, there will be no conflict between scripture and science. It's like there are two books the book of God's works in creation and the book of God's word in scripture. And that God is the one who is the source of both of them. So they're not going to inherently conflict with each other, even though we're sometimes working out some of those tensions. So Jastrow says, theologians are generally delighted with the proof that the universe had a beginning, but astronomers are curiously upset. Of course, there are Christian astronomers. It's not that like they're just all atheists or something. But anyway, uh, their reactions provide an interesting demonstration of the response of the scientific mind, supposedly a very objective mind, when evidence uncovered by science itself leads to a conflict with the articles of faith in our profession. It turns out that the scientist behaves the way the rest of us do when our beliefs are in conflict with the evidence. We become irritated, we pretend the conflict does not exist, or we paper over it over with meaningless phrases. Interestingly, in that same book, Robert Jastrow writes about the Big Bang and how it surprised everyone except the theologians. He says that for the scientists, it all end, you know, the secular atheistic scientists, it ends like a bad dream. Here they are scaling the rocks of their ignorance to try to get to the top, and finally when they reach it, they're greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. 
the beginning of the universe, the Big Bang, the fine-tuning, the intricate design of the universe, these are two great discoveries of the 20th century that support very nicely the biblical record that God is the creator and the designer of the universe. So when we come to what caused the Big Bang, another, uh, another noted scientist, he writes at a popular level, but he's a well-respected physicist, uh, Paul Davies says one might consider some supernatural force, some agency beyond space uh, and time as being responsible for the Big Bang, or one might prefer to regard the Big Bang as an event without a cause. However, we don't have too much choice. Either something outside the, the physical world or an event without a cause brought, you know, that's how it came to being. Now, the problem with an event without a cause is there's just no scientific support for that. In fact, it just doesn't even make sense when you think about reality. How could being something come from no thing? How could being come from non-being? If there's not even the potentiality for something to emerge, how could something come when you don't even have the potential for something? It's just nothing. So we're not just talking about you know, subatomic particles uh, that somehow brought a universe into being. That's, that is still something. But matter is finite. It is not eternal. And so we need to look to something beyond the physical universe to account for it. Alexander Vilenkin, uh, noted physicist, you know, cosmologist, top of the game at Tufts University, he says the volume of the universe increases with time. Inflation cannot be eternal and must have some sort of beginning. The answer to the question, did the universe have a beginning, is it probably did. We have no viable models of an eternal universe. Something big happened. And it, the universe is simply not eternal. It is not self-sufficient. Again, another quotation from non-Christian uh, scientists. Um, they said our picture is more like the biblical picture, the traditional metaphysical picture of creation out of nothing. Uh, so there's a beginning to everything, including time itself. In fact, if you're interested, you can take a look at the, a book. Uh, it's, it's a more, uh, you know, I, I've summarized a few of those things in, a, in another book called Loving Wisdom, but this is a book if you're interested in looking at the science, the philosophy, the biblical, uh, you know, kind of the biblical aspect as well as the theological aspect to it. You can take a look at the book Creation of Nothing. William Lane Craig, a noted philosopher and theologian, and I uh, wrote this book. But the point is that we're making is that all of these disciplines converge in support of a universe that came to existence a finite time ago. And don't be afraid of the Big Bang. Uh, it just you know, it is pr primarily an indicator that the universe began to exist. And a Big Bang needs a Big Banger. <laughs> Bangs don't happen by themselves. Uh, that there is a cause for that. So again, the issue is not the age of the universe. I'm not really pushing that. Really, it's just, you know, there's a general acknowledgement that the universe began to exist a finite time ago. Some people say, ah, oh, but there are, there are multiverses. There are probably lots of universes out there. And sure enough, and, and surely, one of those maybe infinite numbers of universes will actually have life that can, you know, that can produce human beings starting from a single-celled organism. Well, that may be very interesting, but it still doesn't get to the bottom of the issue. For one thing, we don't have any evidence for these universes. So here, the scientist is very concerned about evidence, right? But where do those universes, you know, where's the evidence for those universes? No, it's just kind of a model, a hypothesis. And often to evade the existence of God uh, as a designer. 
But secondly, even if you hold that there are multiple universes, they all began to exist. <laughs> they're finite, they're limited. Matter is not eternal, it is limited. And, and so the universes must have sprung into existence a finite time ago. And then you've got the question, well, how, what generated those universes? What got them going? How did they spring into being? There must be some generator to generate universes. Well, so, so they all had a beginning. It, it, the simpler explanation is they point to a single source, something like God would make excellent sense out of those things. It, you know, so whether there are many universes or just one, there's gotta be something behind them. So again, scientific discovery doesn't tell us that everything has to have a cause. It just tells us that everything that begins to exist has a cause. Let me just go on to the philosophical aspect here. Uh, as we look at the philosophical dimension of, uh, of this question, uh, we see that there's very strong support for the notion that something always had to exist, that there is something that the universe actually depends upon. And this is not something that's philosophically problematic. Uh, the, the thinker, uh, philosopher Leibniz said, asked the question, why is there something rather than nothing at all? You ever thought about that? Why does anything exist at all? Well, the answer, and again, I'm gonna have to you know, kind of be, be cut to the chase here. I'm, I'm uh, like, like, the, you know, I'm, I'm like the Egyptian mummy kind of pressed for time, so I'm trying to wrap up very quickly. Um, but, uh, but you know, there, for, for one thing, there's no reason that the universe had to exist. Everything is finite, everything is contingent. Every, you look at any bit of matter in the universe, well, it's finite, it's not eternal. You, it's not as though you put it all together and then it becomes infinite. No, it's all dependent, it all began to exist. And so the question is, why does anything exist at all? And so as we look at this question, when we talk about what caused God, the problem with this question is that it assumes atheism. Because if something caused God, then he can't be God after all. God does not have a cause. God, by definition, cannot not exist. God necessarily exists. So we can simply say that everything that begins to exist has a cause, but not everything that exists has a cause. There's a big distinction here. And so when a person says, well, where did God come from? It's, it's a confused question. It's sort of like saying, oh, all reali reality is physical, therefore God can exist because God's not physical. No, you've, that's, you've, you've already ruled God out of the picture. You're, you're basically saying, no, God cannot exist. Everything is physical. Well, uh, could there be any, you know, any God out there? No, everything's physical. Well, no, that's a, se a separate question that needs to be, you know, a lot of people will make claims, but the issue is, how can you justify that claim? Don't just simply say it and sound authoritative and think you've won the argument. What are your reasons for saying that everything is physical? Everything is physical, no. The universe, the physical universe began to exist. Something beyond the universe, something non-physical, therefore must exist. Um, let me just, I'm gonna have to scoot through here. You know, when we look at the, when we look at that question, the person assumes that God must be contingent or dependent rather than ultimate or self-sufficient or necessary. But keep in mind that God is different from all other things that exist. You know, who is like the Lord our God who is enthroned on high, the psalmist asks. God is not contingent. Contingent things depend upon things outside of themselves. Without those things outside of themselves, they would not exist, but that's different from God. God, as we said, is ultimate. He cannot not exist. He exists by definition. And if we're talking about something causing God, we're not talking about God anymore. 
So God is the reason for his own existence. God, by his very nature, exists. That is, God has within himself the reason for his own existence. We as contingent beings, we have reasons for our existence outside of ourselves, but God has the reason for existing within himself. It's sort of like the two plus two equals four. Ask the question, well, is two plus two equal four in true in some worlds, but not in others? Like, you know, for example, if this, you know, if, if the universe turned out differently than it would, than it did, would two plus two equals four not be true? No, that cuts across all possible universes. Why? Because it's necessarily true. Two plus two equals four is the way it is. It could never equal five or six or whatever. That's just true by its very nature. In the same way God exists in all possible worlds and he cannot not exist in whatever possible configuration you could come up with. God necessarily exists. So when we talk about who made God, this confuses the necessary and the contingent. It expects God to be a dependent being rather than an independent one. And that's not fair to the question. It's an open question. Uh, can there be some things that exist that don't depend upon other things? And as we look at the history of philosophy, we say, yes, there are people who have recognized, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and other Greek philosophers, they believe that there are certain, certain things that were eternal, that were just there, like the forms of the good and the true and the beautiful and so forth, uh, you know, that there were certain things that were always there. They even believed that matter was eternal, but there was a, a shaper of that matter into an orderly universe called the Demiurge. But they believed that something was always there, and they didn't see that as logically contradictory. It's very interesting that now that we know the universe began to exist a finite time ago, People saying, where, where did, well, then where did God come from? 200 years ago, people assumed, oh, the universe doesn't need an explanation. It's always been there. It's self-existent. It's self-explanatory. Again, now that things have shifted, now we have evidence for the universe's being finite, not eternal. Then people are saying, well, what about God then? There's nothing incoherent about saying something has always existed. In fact, here's the point, and I'm going to have to you know, scale back on my slides here. The point is this. Unless you believe that something can pop into existence uncaused out of nothing, you have to believe that something has always been there. Something can't just pop into existence uncaused out of nothing. Your only alternative is that something has always been there. That's what Paul Davies was saying. Can things pop into existence uncaused out of nothing? Yeah. Elephants, uh, you know, palm trees, just pop into existence uncaused out of nothing? Well, no, there's not even the potentiality for that sort of a thing. But if the universe is contingent, there's something on which it depends. And that's not an illogical sort of a thing. It's very, it makes perfect sense. You've got to believe that something has always been there. Going back to that question, why is there something rather than nothing at all? The universe didn't have to exist. Well, then what's beneath that then? There has to be something that accounts for its existence. Sounds a lot like God. And that's something that we can explore, but, uh, but it makes sense, fits very well with the evidence of science uh, and, 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 and philosophy as well. Bertrand Russell, we can, let's come back to him briefly. Remember, he was the one who said, you know, who made God? What, what caused God if everything needs a cause? Now in this debate that he had with Frederick Copleston, a Christian philosopher, when he was asked, well, where did the universe come from? He said, well, I should just say that it's been there, just, it's just there, and that's all. But 
you know, 20 some years ago, you were saying that the universe, you know, that, you know, that everything needs a cause. And now you're saying that the universe does not need a cause. But of course, like we said, now that we know the universe began to exist, you still have to ask the question, well, where did the universe come from after all? Because it was not existing there all along. Let me just draw out a few. Uh, oh, here's, a, you know, here's another question. You know, suppose you hear loud bangs, an atheist philosopher. Uh, you ask me, what made that bang? And I reply, nothing, it just happened. You would not expect that. In fact, you would find my reply quite unintelligible. And, uh, you know, of course, if that's true of little bangs, why not of the big bang as well? So uh, we have, uh, you know, I'm going to skip that review and even those two questions. Um, but let me just offer a few comments uh, in closing on uh, the, some of the theological implications here. One, when we talk about miracles, some people say, oh, I can't believe in miracles like water into wine or people rising from the dead. That just goes against science. Of course, if there's a God, there's, here's the point. If there's a God who begins the universe, there's your first miracle. If the universe began to exist without any matter, energy, space, or time, you've got a miracle. You couldn't predict that sort of a thing would happen based on what preceded it, as it were. The universe began to exist. Well, miracles, if, if that big miracle can happen, what, what's the problem with these lesser miracles that work with matter that's already in existence? Water turned into wine and so forth. So there's no, nothing intellectually problematic here uh, with uh, resurrections or the like. Love, we talked about this, that, uh, that God, Father, Son, and Spirit, there's a loving relationship, that God did not create human beings out of some sort of emotional need. God was self-sufficient within himself. There's a loving relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that love is eternal, rooted in this relational God who creates human beings to relate to him. And God, you know, in contrast to the biblical God, there is the extreme of deism on the one side where God just winds up the universe, lets it go, but is pretty much inattentive to what's going on with humanity. And then there's another view called pantheism where everything is divine. There's no difference between uh, you know, one thing and another. Everything is just divine. Tables, chairs, trees, stones, human beings, and so forth. Within the middle, you have the biblical viewpoint where God, who is distinct from his creation, meets with human beings. He gathers with them. There are, there are, he walks with human beings in the garden, Genesis 3, 8. That God is, you know, that meeting with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're setting up altars. There are these meeting places. Jacob says, surely God was in this place and I did not know it. We see the tabernacle, the, the, the movable uh, worship center. Uh, we see the temple that is built. We see then Jesus comes into the world, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us and we behold his glory. And then we later on, see, you know, we, are, we ourselves are called the temple of the Holy Spirit, that God resides within us through his spirit, that we have access to God through Jesus Christ and that one day in the new heavens and the new earth, as Revelation tells us, that God will dwell in the midst of his people. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. There is that relationality with God and that is something that cuts, across, cuts through history, that God is meeting with people, that God desires connection with human beings. Uh, just very briefly uh, on divine freedom and divine power, it's just interesting that Mormonism, Latter-day Saints, 
hold that, of course, not just one God exists, but there are many gods, but there's one God over our universe, according to them. But according to Mormon theology, God cannot create or destroy matter. It is eternal. Now, a couple of problems with that. For one thing, this, the problem is that it, if this has implications for God's freedom. God could not have freely created the universe unless he had pre-existing matter lying around that he could organize into an orderly universe. There's one problem. Secondly, there's a problem with divine power. For Mormons, God is incapable of creating matter. That's kind of a lame and limited version of what we know of God in the scriptures. God speaks and it comes into being. God thinks and it happens. That's the kind of God we serve, a God who is powerful, who is not limited by stuff that he has in front of him that has been existing alongside of him from eternity. God brings it into existence. A finite time of God is God's freedom and God's power are not compromised in the biblical account. And then let me just end with this. Personhood. In Psalm 8, we read that God creates human beings a little lower than himself. He creates us in his image and gives us the authority to rule over creation, to, to, to care for it, to tend to it, not to despoil it and to pollute it and so forth. That's, God is the, you know, we see in the next chapter that, that, uh, that Adam is tending to the garden, that there's a stewardship, that there's a care and concern for the, the, the world in which God has placed humanity. But what we see here is that God has made human beings with dignity and worth. A lot of people say, oh, I can believe in God without, you know, with, without, you know, you know, and I can still be good or I can still believe in values even apart from God. Well, the problem is you haven't gone back to examine where did they come from? Yes, we believe those things. We make sense of those things because we've been made in God's image. We've been made with dignity and worth and personal responsibility. But how does it make sense that blind, non-conscious, valueless, non-rational matter eventually developed into valuable, rational, conscious human beings. If God exists, there's no problem accounting for that. But those who say, oh, we, we, can, we, we have morality without God, well, where did value come from in a valueless universe? God makes excellent sense of that. It's hard to account for that if you say that we it just all came from meaningless, uh, materialistic you know, uh, context. But more than that, more than just our having dignity and worth because God made us in his image, there is also a personal dimension to this as well, that as we read the scriptures, God is one who knows the very hairs on our head, that they're numbered by him. God knows those things. God even knows that a, when a sparrow falls. But when we get to Revelation chapter two, Jesus says that to the one who overcomes, I will give to him a white stone with his name on it, with a name on it that no one else knows except the person to whom it is given. Do you see that personal dimension. There is not just a kind of a general essence that we have in our own humanity, that we have human nature, but there is something about you individually. There is an essence to you that no one else can have. And Jesus is noting that when he says, I will write a name on it that only that person knows. There is a deeply personal element 
to God's relating to humanity. It's not just in general, not just corporate, which is wonderful, but there's also that individualized concern that God has for each one of us. That there is a great worth to you that has been bestowed upon you by God's grace and that God has a special, special concern for you. That is something to rejoice in, that the God who made the heavens and the earth and, and the, the, you know, we, we think, oh, are we just these specks of dust? No, God made you with value and God has a particular concern about each one of you. And that is a great cause for rejoicing. It is through the work of Jesus Christ that we can benefit from these things and appreciate them and give thanks to our Creator for making us in this way and giving us the capacity to relate to Him, to come boldly, as Hebrews says, before the throne of grace, that we might find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks for the opportunity to gather together, to learn about these questions, to think through them more deeply, and to be better equipped in sharing the good news of the gospel to others and being ready uh, to share these things with gentleness and respect. Thank you for these uh, brothers and sisters here uh, who have listened. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you will uh, send them forth with your blessing, with a concern for mission to being and bringing the good news to others who are in great need of it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Copan. Well, that concludes our month of apologetics. As previously mentioned, we'll kick back into the book of Matthew, going through it verse by verse, starting next week. Um, as you go today, be reminded that the uncaused cause, the unmoved mover, the infinite one, the ground for all reality, saw fit to take upon finite human flesh to come to die and to resurrect in order that men and women might be reconciled to him the most powerful being and force in the universe, has a love that's beyond measure, and he displayed that love for you at the cross. So go in the peace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're dismissed.